There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. I'm Dina Marie, host of the Twisted Philly podcast. This week, we are venturing outside the city to southeastern Pennsylvania. We're going out to Chester County, even a little bit into Lancaster County, and probably as far south as the Maryland border. This area of Pennsylvania is home to beautiful pastoral farm country, Amish horse-drawn carriages, and whoopie pies, which is one of my daughter's most favorite desserts. Lancaster even has an annual whoopie pie festival, which we went to a few years, but I have to tell you, it wasn't nearly as big or as much fun as we expected based on all the hype. The story I want to share with you today is one that many would never have believed could happen where it did, in sleepy little farm communities and suburban residential towns so far outside the grittier streets of Philadelphia where crime families were common. No one expected that one of the most ruthless and notorious crime gangs in Pennsylvania was amassing amid the fields and rows of corn swaying in a summer breeze. And when it came time to take this gang down, no one expected that Pennsylvania would show up as the example of what it means to be in law enforcement, what it means to be transparent and share what you know, work together instead of worrying about which jurisdiction or branch of law enforcement someone is attached to and who will get credit for the collar. It took a village to bring down a village-sized crime gang operating in Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and a village is what showed up. The FBI, Pennsylvania State Police, Chester County Police, and Detectives Department, the Delaware State Police, Maryland State Police, the Chester County District Attorney, and the U.S. Attorney General's Office. It took all that and more to bring down the Johnson gang. This is the story of Bruce Johnson Sr., his son, his brothers, his cousins, their friends, countless other men. This is the story of the Johnson gang. In 1956, when Bruce Johnson Sr. was just 15 years old and living near Kennett Square, and that's a town in Chester County, Pennsylvania, he was expelled from school. There really aren't any details about why he was expelled, but you can formulate your own opinions on that one based on his activities after he left school. He and his brothers, and he had a bunch of them, but two in particular, spent plenty of time after Bruce was kicked out of school to focus on more financially rewarding yet nefarious pursuits. Stealing. Within a few years, Bruce wound up doing time in a juvenile state facility. He spent a few years off and on, between 1960 and 1966, incarcerated. He went in as a kid and as a young adult. Now, he might have been a fucked up kid making all sorts of bad decisions and fighting authority, but that experience did anything but rehabilitate him. His time in jail made him worse. It made him feel like he was prepared to kick things up a notch and really take his criminal passions to an entirely different level. When Bruce Johnson got out of jail in 1966, he almost immediately started building one of the most successful and ruthless crime rings in Pennsylvania. 
He didn't do it alone. He had help from two of his younger brothers, David Johnson, who seemed to be an expert at alarm and surveillance systems, and Norman Johnson, who wasn't really all that bright. But you know what? Sometimes you need a crazy motherfucker around. Someone who just won't say no to anything because he's too stupid to say no. Someone you might need to hang some things on when the heat is on you and you need a scapegoat. So there were three Johnson brothers with Bruce as the leader, all from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. And the gang grew quickly with a few more relations and some friends, friends of friends, but basically guys they could trust. And the Johnson gang soon rivaled mob families in Philly. And while these guys weren't La Cosa Nostra, they sure knew how to behave like it. They kept it in the family. No one snitched. Everyone kept their mouth shut. Everyone listened to Bruce and everyone made a shitload of money. Once Bruce got out of jail, he started stealing car parts, and then he and the gang graduated from car parts to cars. Corvettes were really their car of choice, and most of the guys in the gang drove all over southern Chester County in souped-up vets. Everyone knew what they were up to. The cars they didn't keep and pimp out for themselves, they sold to chop shops. So why didn't they get caught? Well, there was no proof. Even with about a half dozen members in the Johnson gang, they kept their mouths shut. No one who knew Bruce and his brothers would talk to the police about anything. These guys may have looked like a couple of hillbillies from Pennsylvania, but everyone knew different. They would steal whatever they could and shoot you in the back when you weren't looking. Their only code was to each other, and eventually even that wore thin. By the early 70s, the Johnson gang stepped up their crimes. They moved from cars to farm equipment. Think about this. If you've ever driven past a farm anywhere, not just in Pennsylvania, you've probably seen massive farm equipment, heavy tractors. I mean, these things are not small. It's not like a car is small, but I think it's easier to steal a car than it would be to steal a tractor and giant farm equipment. But that's what they did. And these guys made millions. Because it wasn't just farm equipment they were stealing and fencing. They got involved in dealing drugs because that's where some real money was. And just like in parts of Philadelphia, there are communities in Chester and Lancaster County that are rife with drugs. Just because you're driving past cows and farmhouses and grain silos and beautiful, sprawling suburban developments doesn't mean there aren't a shitload of people desperate looking to get high. And Bruce Johnson and his gang took advantage of that. Cars, guns, drugs, farm equipment, antiques, jewelry, cigarettes, you name it. The Johnson gang stole it, sold it, made a shitload of money off it all over southeastern Pennsylvania. These guys were slick, especially Bruce Johnson. Most of the guys in the gang had police scanners so they could monitor wherever the cops were. And they had so many members in their gang that when they were pulling off a job in one section of the county, they'd send a few gang members, usually the younger guys, to another part of the county to set up the cops and divert attention from where the really big jobs were going down. In 1971, Bruce Johnson decided to rob an amusement park. Now, I don't know how that thought pops into somebody's head. Hey, I'm going to go rob an amusement park. But that's basically what happened. And he and his gang robbed a place called Dutch Wonderland. Dutch Wonderland opened in Lancaster in 1963. And the Dutch reference was in honor of the Pennsylvania Dutch who lived in that part of the state. Now, I have pictures of myself there with family friends, and I couldn't have been more than three. So this would have been, God, only a year or two after the Johnson gang robbed the park. The funny thing about this photograph is I'm sitting on a bench outside the front of the park and I'm sitting in between two huge statues that are also sitting on this bench. And they're statues of an Amish man and woman. That was Dutch Wonderland in the early 70s. There was a little train and some whale boats and a few other little kitty rides and that was it. So for some reason, this seemed like a great place to rip off to the Johnson gang. 
Bruce Johnson, his brothers David and Norman, broke into the park through a gift shop. They made their way to the park office and they stole $33,000, which might not sound like a lot of money, but that's the equivalent to just about $200,000 today. Not bad for a few hours worth of work. And while at the time, both Lancaster and Chester County police believed this was the work of the Johnson gang, there was no evidence directly tying them to the robbery. About a year later, one of the gang members screwed up, and he screwed up big time. In November 1972, two off-duty police officers, a gentleman named Richard Posey and another named William Davis, were killed outside their car at the police station in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. They were gunned down by a man named Ansel Hamm. Bruce Johnson made sure he surrounded himself with people who brought something to the table. His brother David could navigate and disarm security systems. His brother Norman was sort of the muscle. And Ansel Ham was a safecracker. Officers Posey and Davis were investigating Ham and other members of the Johnson gang. They didn't yet have anything concrete to make arrests, and they never had the opportunity to. On November 15th in 1972, as the officers were exiting their car outside the police station, Ansel Ham shot them both. They were found a little after 2.15 a.m. when they didn't respond to a check-in the department implemented at a quarter past every hour. A fellow officer who was also an EMT found Posey and Davis. Officer Posey was dead at the scene. Officer Davis was taken to a nearby hospital with a weak pulse, and he died shortly thereafter. Bruce Johnson Sr. didn't kill these officers, but a two-bit safecracker who was a member of the Johnson gang did. Anselham was arrested and charged and found guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. But everyone assumed Bruce Johnson had to be behind this, even though there was no evidence that pointed to a conspiracy, and Ansel never gave him up. After Anselham murdered Officer Posey and Davis in Kennett Square, there was more heat on the Johnson gang. But that didn't stop them. Over the next four years, Bruce Johnson and his gang continued their heists. They expanded their operation. They started holding up long-range trucks filled with groceries and more nefarious substances like drugs. One time, they stole a truck transporting drugs from Virginia. It's been said that Bruce Johnson made over a million dollars in the 70s from all of his heists. There was basically nothing Bruce Johnson wouldn't do to make money except murder. And with the deaths of officers Posey and Davis, absolutely nothing was off limits when it came to protecting his lifestyle. Bruce Johnson was senior for a reason. He had a son in 1958, Bruce Johnson Jr. Little Bruce didn't grow up with his dad. His parents were estranged, and his mother even had a son with another man. Bruce grew up outside of the reach of his father, at least for a while. In 1977, little Bruce caught up with his father, and although he hadn't spent much time with his dad when he was young, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Bruce and his half-brother James joined the Johnson gang, and they led a group of teenagers who stole for Bruce Sr. It was mostly petty stuff and stealing cigarettes, but when you start transporting that shit across state lines, it gets pretty serious. Little Bruce could not have picked a worse time to join his father's gang. In 1975, the Johnson gang hit a golf club. They stole 10 grand in cash and thousands of dollars in equipment. They even walked around wearing polo shirts from the club with the logo on them. That's how fucking sure they were no one could touch them. Police from Chester County, Lancaster County, and the Pennsylvania State Police were investigating the Johnson gang, especially Bruce and his brothers David and Norman, and some sketchier members, including a guy named Leslie Dale, but they didn't yet have enough evidence to link them to these crimes. 
Knowing that the police were paying a lot more attention to them, Johnson and his brothers were worried about snitches. And the first place they looked was to the younger members of the gang, Bruce Jr., his half-brother James, and some of their friends. These guys were teenagers. They called them the Little Johnsons or the Kitty Robbers. And Bruce Sr. was worried that they would never be able to keep their mouths shut if the police got closer and put on pressure. The first murder of a Johnson gang member happened in July 1977. Now, up until that point, Johnson ran this group like a family. Most of the members were related in one way or another, and if they weren't related by blood, they were connected through familial relations or they'd known each other most of their lives. These were the kind of guys you didn't kill. But Johnson Sr. wanted to send a message. On July 17th, Bruce Johnson Sr. and one of the gang members named Leslie Dale asked another gang member, a younger guy named Gary Crouch, to pull off a robbery with them. But there was no robbery. They drove Gary out to a desolate spot in western Chester County, and Leslie Dale shot him in the head. Johnson Sr. and Dale dug a shallow grave and dumped Crouch's body in a town called Stottsville. It seemed at first like this was one and done. Kill off one suspected snitch and everyone else will shut their trap. But Bruce Johnson wasn't satisfied. He was especially anxious about the little Johnsons, the kids who followed his son Bruce Jr., Gary Crouch's death did more than silence a suspected snitch. It drew even more attention from police. And it wasn't just his murder. There were so many other activities that had the police focusing on Bruce Johnson and his gang. There was the heist at the golf club. Then in 1976, there were accusations of witness tampering and juror tampering that the Johnsons tried to buy off people in cases associated with other Johnson gang members. Local residents in Chester County had been buying stolen property, and then they were threatened when police asked them to testify against Johnson. Multiple branches of law enforcement in southeastern Pennsylvania were amassing a case against Bruce Johnson Sr. And in the summer of 1978, he had a reason to be worried. His son, little Bruce, got arrested for theft. Bruce Sr. guessed the police would try and turn little Bruce against him, and rightly so. They tried to convince Jr. to testify against Sr., Bruce was staying at a prison farm in Chester County, and at first, Bruce Jr. said no way. He wasn't a snitch. He'd only reconnected with his father a year ago, and he didn't want to turn on him until his father gave him no choice. Little Bruce was 19 years old in 1978. He was 19 years old and running a ring of teen criminals under the watchful eye of his father. He was bound to get arrested. But he was also struggling with this lifestyle because of a young woman named Robin Miller. Bruce met Robin a year before he was arrested. She was dating one of his friends. Isn't that always the way it happens? You're in a relationship and it's okay. There's really nothing wrong, but it doesn't have that feeling. And then one day you meet someone and it's like, bam. Now, they were young. Robin was even younger than Bruce. She was only 15 when they started dating. And Robin Miller lived pretty far south in Chester County in an area called East Nottingham that's all the way down by the Maryland border. Little Bruce had to make a real effort to see her and spend time with her, and he did. But her parents, they were not thrilled that their 15-year-old daughter was dating a 19-year-old boy who made a living through organized crime. They had two options, throw down the hammer and risk their daughter running away with this kid, or invite little Bruce into their home so they could keep an eye on their daughter while she spent time with him. And that's what they did. They kept their daughter close, and they thought they were keeping their daughter safe. One day in the summer of 1978, while little Bruce was in prison, 
Bruce Sr. and his brother Norman showed up at Robin Miller's house. They offered to take her to visit Bruce Jr. Of course, she jumped at the chance to see her boyfriend. But they never took her to visit little Bruce. They took her to a hotel. They forced alcohol on her. They filled her with whiskey and then they raped her. Robin Miller was 15 and she was raped by her boyfriend's father and his uncle. Bruce Sr. wanted little Bruce to understand just how far his reach was. But this had the opposite effect. Little Bruce wanted revenge, and he got it by cooperating with police and turning state's evidence against his father, Bruce Johnson Sr. Bruce Sr. might not have been able to get to his son while he was in prison. Well, he could get to his son, but it would take a little time. And in the meantime, there were other members of the Little Johnsons to get rid of. On August 16, 1978, three young men were murdered by Bruce Sr., his brother David, and a gang member named Ray Mitchell. Bruce Sr. had gathered up little Bruce's half-brother James Johnson, and he stashed him at his mother's house. Then they went and got two young men named Dwayne Lincoln and Wayne Sampson. Now, James joined the gang with Bruce back in 1977, and he may have had a different father than Bruce, but he took the same last name as his brother. He wanted to be known as a Johnson. Those three teenage boys were slaughtered by gunfire and dumped in a single grave outside Bruce Johnson's mother's house near Chadsford, Pennsylvania. Little Bruce knew he wasn't safe after his brother disappeared. He didn't know that he'd been murdered, but he knew that he was in trouble. Whether he was in prison or not, it was just a matter of time before his father got to little Bruce or hired someone to do it for him. On August 17th, Bruce Johnson Jr. agreed to testify before a Philadelphia grand jury, but he had one condition. He wanted to see his girlfriend, Robin Miller. Police let little Bruce out of the prison farm because word was there was a hit on him inside the prison. After they let him out, law enforcement tried to convince Bruce to enter a witness protection program, but he refused. He wanted to see Robin. He wanted to get high. He wanted to enjoy time out of prison. And I wonder if there was a little part of him that just couldn't really believe his father would try to kill him. He got word through relatives that his dad would give him almost $15,000 if he refused to cooperate with police. But then he also heard his dad was offering that same money to anyone who would kill little Bruce. His dad had been trying to find him for a week, calling and visiting relatives. Little Bruce should have known his dad was looking for him to kill him. On August 30th, 1978, little Bruce spent the day with his girlfriend, Robin Miller. He picked her up and he took her to Hershey Park. They rode roller coasters. They ate chocolate, of course. He bought her a purse and he told his mom he wanted to clean up his act. He wanted to give up stealing altogether and lead a different life than the one he was living with his father. He wanted to marry Robin when she turned 16 later that year. It was a perfect day at the happiest place on earth. That's what we call Hershey Park. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me say, when you're in Hershey, you either smell shit or chocolate, depending on which way the wind is blowing. That day, it was blowing chocolate as a young man whose life was a mess saw a different future for himself with a girl that he loved. The drive home from Hershey to Robin Miller's family farm was a long one, and it was after midnight by the time little Bruce pulled his VW Rabbit into her driveway. It took a little while for them to get out of the car. Robin was excited, and she wanted to grab all the souvenirs from their day together and bring them into the house with her. No one was home. Robin's family left earlier that week for a vacation in Virginia. It was just two kids coming home after a long day at an amusement park. 
And that's when bullets ripped through the night. Bruce Johnson Jr. was shot eight times. He was hit in the head, the chest, and the arm. Robin was only hit once in the jaw. The two of them managed to get in the house before Robin collapsed in Bruce's arms and he called the police. He told the police the shooting was still going on because he hoped that would get the cops there faster and the cops showed up en masse. Avondale police where the shooting occurred, Chester County Police, Pennsylvania State Police, even the FBI. They all converged on the Miller farm. Ambulances arrived, but it was too late for Robin Miller. That one bullet was enough to kill her just a few weeks before she was about to start high school. Pennsylvania State Trooper Thomas Cloud was one of the men called that night in August, and instead of heading to the Miller farmstead, he went to the hospital. No one knew if Bruce Johnson Jr. would survive. He was barely alive when police arrived after taking eight bullets into his body. Trooper Cloud went to the hospital because he was afraid someone would need to record a dying declaration. That way there would be evidence against Bruce Johnson Sr. in the event Little Bruce passed away. Little Bruce was taken to a nearby hospital where he underwent emergency surgery, which ultimately saved his life. Now, the Johnson gang must have been watching all of this from somewhere because the first night Bruce Jr. was in the hospital, someone tried to break in through locked doors that weren't being monitored by security. After that, Bruce was given 24-hour police protection. But that did nothing to undo what had been done to Robin, raped by his father and uncle, murdered by members of his father's gang, murdered as an afterthought because the real target that night was his son, Bruce Johnson Jr. Police from all over Pennsylvania conducted manhunts for Bruce Johnson Sr. and the members of the Johnson gang. They found tire tracks leading through a field to Robin Miller's farm. They found 38 caliber projectiles from bullets that tore through little Bruce's car and damn near killed him. They interviewed family members. Little Bruce's grandmother was interviewed by police, a woman named Harriet Steffi. She told police she believed Bruce Sr. tried to kill little Bruce. She said Bruce Johnson Sr. had been at her house the week before little Bruce's attempted murder. And even though he swore up and down, he meant little Bruce no harm. He'd already killed or orchestrated the murder of five other members of the Johnson game over the past year, and she knew he was out for blood. One time when he showed up at Harriet's house, he had a friend with him, a gang member named Leslie Dale, and the police were interested in talking with Leslie. They had a feeling he'd either been one of the gunmen or he knew who was. There were so many men involved in solving Robin Miller's murder and the attempted murder of Bruce Johnson Jr., plus the other gang members who were murdered over the summer and Gary Crouch the year before. It's hard to mention all of them, so I'm going to focus on two that really stood out to me. One was State Trooper Thomas Cloud, who I already mentioned, and another was a member of the Chester County Detective's Office, a man named Charles Zagorski. Detective Zagorski had been with the state police until 1975 when he left to join Chester County Detective's Office, and in both jobs, he'd been tied to the Johnson Gang investigation. After Robin Miller's murder, it was Detective Zagorski who found and arrested Leslie Dale, and while in custody, Dale agreed to testify against Bruce Johnson Sr. and his brothers Norman and David. After Dale opened up, three other members of the Johnson's gang turned state's evidence. 
With Bruce Jr.'s testimony, plus those of four members of the gang, there was enough evidence to arrest Bruce Sr. and his brother. Now, sometimes you get guys like this on something little while you build the case for something big. Bruce Johnson Sr. had been arrested in 1979 and sent to prison for theft. It was farm equipment again, out in Lancaster County. While he was in jail for theft, the police put together the case against him for murder. Leslie Dale and Bruce Johnson Jr. were really the key witnesses. Dale had to confess to the murder of Gary Crouch in 1977, but he also implicated Bruce Sr. in planning and carrying out the murder. He led detectives to the grave, and once Crouch's remains were found, everything fell apart. More gang members came forward with stories of hundreds of burglaries and multiple murders. And the murder of Robin Miller, the shooting that killed her and almost killed Bruce Johnson Jr. on August 30th in 1978? Turns out that was Bruce's uncles. David and Norman Johnson pulled the triggers. They weren't even much older than little Bruce when they tried to kill him. David was 32 and Norman was 29. On March 18, 1980, David and Norman Johnson were each convicted of four counts of first-degree murder. They received multiple life sentences, plus 12 to 25 years for burglary and other offenses related to gang activity on top of the life sentences. David Johnson immediately filed appeals on the basis of after-evidentiary findings. He claimed that evidence wasn't made available to his original attorneys during trial and was only discovered after the ruling, so he requested a new trial. It took seven years for this appeal to be set to rest, and it passed through the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court until evidentiary trial hearings in 1987 when the court ruled against a new trial. On November 15, 1980, Bruce Johnson Sr. was convicted of six counts of first-degree murder and attempted murder of his son. Now, there was something important about that date. November 15th was exactly eight years after the murder of Kennett Square police officers William Davis and Richard Posey. It might have been gang member Ansel Ham who pulled the trigger that day in 1972, but it was at the command of Bruce Johnson Sr. Like his brother David, Bruce appealed his sentence and he requested a new trial. In 1992, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court upheld Bruce Johnson Sr.'s six consecutive life sentences and his request for a new trial was denied. Each of the brothers were incarcerated separately. There's no way the state would put them in the same prison or they would have a massive gang rising up within the prison system. In 1985, Bruce Sr. was serving time at SCI Pittsburgh, and SCI is what we call state correctional institutes. He was charged with murdering another inmate, a man named George Arms, who was from Reading, Pennsylvania. Now, rumor had it that George Arms stole some personal items from Bruce Johnson's cell. Bruce didn't do the dirty work himself, though. He convinced another inmate, a guy named Jose Lopez, to saturate George Arms' cell with a flammable liquid. And then when Arms walked into his cell, Lopez threw a cup of solvent in his face along with a lit match. Arms died from his burns, which covered almost 80% of his body, and somehow both Johnson and Lopez were found not guilty. The jury said they couldn't believe witnesses on either side of the case. 
You couldn't believe the defense witnesses, but nor could you believe the prosecution witnesses. And since they couldn't find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, their only option was to find them not guilty. After that, Bruce Sr. was moved to Graterford Prison in Montgomery County, which is less than an hour from where I live. And there he remained without much trouble until he died in 2002. Bruce Johnson Sr. was 63 years old. His brother Norman Johnson also had a rather noteworthy moment during incarceration. In 1999, he escaped. Yeah, it was on August 2nd, my birthday. It was discovered that Norman had escaped from SCI Huntington, and he was reported missing during a bed check. He fabricated a dummy out of pillows, and he even used human hair on its head to make the guards think he was sleeping. I don't want to know where he got the hair. And then he cut through a section of fence outside the prison. Norman made his way back to the Kennett Square area, which was terrifying for residents. He spent weeks hiding out at family or friends' houses along the border between Pennsylvania and Maryland. What finally got him caught is really hysterical. So he stole a car and he tried to pump gas. Now, he'd been in prison for almost 20 years, and he didn't know how to operate a self-serve pump. So he asked someone for help pumping gas into the stolen car. He was recognized and apprehended. After that, he was moved to SCI Camp Hill just outside of Harrisburg, and he's still there today. Norman Johnson is 68 years old. The last Johnson brother, David, is incarcerated in SCI Green, which is about an hour southwest of his brother Norman. Other than his request for a new trial, David's incarceration was completely uneventful. And what about little Bruce, Bruce Johnson Jr.? I wish I could tell you that he stuck to the promise he made to his mother back in 1978. The promise that was motivated by a future with Robin Miller. He wanted to turn his life around. Bruce did spend years in witness protection, but he couldn't stick with the program. He wanted to get out. He wanted to get high. He kept heading back to Kennett Square, and he couldn't avoid breaking the law. The only thing that kept him out of jail for robbery and drug charges in the late 70s and early 80s was his cooperation with the prosecution against his father and his uncles. About four years ago, Bruce Johnson was arrested in a town called Gap, Pennsylvania, for selling drugs to an undercover police officer. He's in prison today. There was a movie released in 1986 about the Johnson gang, although in the movie they were called the Whitewood Gang and the movie is called At Close Range. Christopher Walken portrayed Bruce Johnson Sr., and Sean Penn was Little Bruce. And while I love both these actors and thought they delivered terrific performances, once I researched more about this case, I sort of hate the movie. And so did most of the members of law enforcement associated with this case. William Lamb, who was the district attorney of Chester County at the time, and Detective Charles Zagorski, plus a few other members of law enforcement, actually met with Sean Penn and the film's producer. They were asked to consult on the film. Now, they were hoping to be like advisors who would maybe bring a sense of reality to the film and highlight the way so many different law enforcement agencies worked together for years to bring these guys to justice. There was no territoriality, there was no turf issue, they worked as a team of brothers. But if you've seen the film, you know that's not what it's about. After reading the script, Zagorski and Lamb said thanks, but no thanks. They wanted no part of a movie that portrayed these guys as folk heroes. 
When he was asked about the film, Detective Zagorski was quoted as saying, the movie had nothing to do with reality. It might have been done for entertainment, but it sure didn't entertain me. It glorified things that shouldn't have been glorified. And State Trooper Thomas Cloud said, the movie, per se, stunk. Before I go, I need to thank someone, a listener named Sam Rizzo. Sam messaged me about two months ago and asked if I was planning on covering a story about the Johnson gang. It was a story with which I was familiar, and I thought I'd cover it at some point, but it wasn't yet in my roster. So over the past two months, between other episodes that were already on the docket, I would do a little bit of research about the Johnson family. I dug down rabbit holes of old newspaper archives I watched at close range again. I watched an old episode of America's Most Wanted when Norman Johnson escaped. And I read a book called Jailing the Johnson Gang by Bruce Moday, who was a young assistant state's attorney in Philadelphia in the 70s. He was attached to this case for years. He followed the cops and the investigators and the federal agents who followed the trail of the Johnsons. It's a great book. There are so many details about each and every investigator involved in the case and the impact they had on bringing these men to justice. And Sam, I would like to send you a copy of that book as a thank you. So keep an eye out for a Facebook message from me so I can get your address. And this is where our story ends for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and thanks to Emmy Sarah for the brilliant music you hear in every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website, emmysarah.com, and download her music on iTunes. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.